This fall, we've been uh, doing a series focused on rediscovering spirit form community. And we've said that because the church in the book of Acts is an excellent model of what spirit form community looks like, we've been considering some of the characteristics that uh, we see in the early church in Acts. Today, we're going to be considering how this spirit form community embraced adversity by considering the account of Paul and Silas um, in prison. Corey Ten Boom, uh, best known for her famous book, The Hiding Place, uh, it's a biography that recounts the story of how she, along with her father, sister, and other members of their uh, family, uh, helped Jews escape Nazi Holocaust during World War II by hiding them in their home. And uh, at one point, they were caught by the authorities, arrested, and she was sent to a concentration camp. And her story is a story of someone who found hope in the midst of those terrible circumstances because of her faith in Jesus Christ. And on one moment when she was discussing the importance of facing adversity and maintaining one's faith in God, this is what she said. She said, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You just sit still and trust the engineer. This morning, I want to remind us that in a spirit-formed community, people embrace adversity by choosing to focus on God instead of of their circumstances. Acts chapter 16 uh, was read earlier. Thank you, Pastor Mark, for jumping in there, sharing that with us. And uh, we're going to just take a look at it for a few moments this morning. I want to start with what I call the incident. The incident. Acts chapter 16 begins with Paul having a vision from God. And the result of that vision is that he and the team believe that the Spirit is leading them to Macedonia, and so they make way in that direction, and they end up in the city of Philippi. The city of Philippi was, became a Roman colony about 100 years prior to this story that we're looking at today. Two Roman generals, Anthony and Octavian, turned their armies on each other. Octavian won, and when the battle ended, there were thousands of Roman soldiers in northern Greece with nothing to do. And so Rome didn't want to bring them back home, so they gave them land around the area of Philippi to settle with their families. As other Roman veterans from other battles retired, they joined them there. And so Philippi became this place that was loyal to Rome, that worshipped the emperor. And most of the families in Philippi at the time of Paul and Silas and the team arriving there are descendants of these Roman colonists. Now we understand as we read scripture that Jews at this time were dispersed in many different countries, uh, dispersed away from Israel. And so wherever they found themselves, they established Jewish meeting places Uh, in these Gentile locations so they could worship away from home. And so as we follow the ministry of Paul, we'll notice that he often goes to these meeting places. That's his starting point in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in our story, it's the Sabbath. And so Paul and his team are seeking out 
if there are any Jewish believers. We're told that there's a small group of them that are worshiping at the river on the outside of town, outside of the city gates. Now, we know that Jews often set up their worship areas near water because ceremonial washing was a very important part of their worship. And so being by the water made sense. And they're likely meeting outside the city gate because this is such a Roman city and emperor worship is so uh, predominant and the religious culture of of the Roman Empire was so opposed to their faith that it probably would have made worshiping within the city difficult. And so we find them outside. We're told that there are only women in attendance, only women in attendance. And the leader of this group of women is Lydia. She's a wealthy business owner and her household are there with her, her servants, her employees, etc. Anyone that's a part of her household, they are worshiping in their Jewish faith down by the river on this particular Sabbath. We're told that Paul and their team find them there and begin to share some teaching about Jesus. And we're told that after the teaching, they accept Jesus. And we're told that Lydia and her household not only accept Jesus, but they are baptized, which being next to water is really convenient. And then Paul and his team are invited to stay in her home, likely a larger home with more space because she is a wealthy business owner. And so while they are ministering in Philippi, they're staying in the home of this newly converted uh, woman uh, in Philippi. Now, on one particular day, we're told that Paul and his team are headed to the place of prayer when a young slave girl was following them. And she's shouting as she's following them, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they are telling you the way to be saved. Sounds like a good message. Now, this has been going on for over a period of days. And Paul, which says, becomes troubled. This is troubled. He's finally had enough. And he addressed the situation. We understand that the slave girl has multiple owners. And uh, she is also demon-possessed. And the spirit within her enables her to tell the future. She's a fortune teller. In fact, the word that Luke uses to describe her activity is false prophet. Luke says she's a false prophet. And so in this culture, slaves could be rented. And so most likely, people would rent out this slave and take her to their location where she would then tell them their futures and give them direction and advice. Well, the spirit within her exposed the mission of Paul and his team. And what we see here is really similarities to the ministry of Jesus because like in the ministry of Jesus, oftentimes Jesus withheld his identity for a time because of the, of the mission and demons would also often announce to the crowds who he was. And so the demon in her is doing this very thing. Her proclamation is potentially creating danger for Paul and the team and hindering the mission. Now, I want us to notice that Paul didn't speak to the girl. He spoke to the spirit. 
And he said to this demonic spirit, in the name of Jesus, come out. And we're told that at that moment, the spirit came out and the slave girl was free from the demonic oppression. So this is what we'll call the incident that shapes this story. It's followed by the accusation. With the demonic spirit gone out of the girl's life, any hope of making money off this young slave is now gone. Now, ironically, she is free, and Paul and Silas are about to become imprisoned. The owners, were told, seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace, the center of the city, the place where the authorities gathered to weigh out issues, and they accused them. Uh, they didn't accuse them of exorcism. I want us to notice that. Because accusing them of exorcism would likely not result in any penalty, so instead they brought false charges against them. They said they oppose our local customs. They oppose our local customs. They're trying to represent them as anti-Roman Jews. There were two very serious accusations that often resulted in punishment in the Roman Empire. One was disturbing the peace, and the second was anti-Roman customs. In the Roman Empire, accusers were valued as higher than those being accused. Unlike our legal system, you were guilty until proven innocent. And if a Roman citizen brought the accusation against someone who was a non-Roman, then the likelihood of the accused being set free was very unrealistic. And at this time in the story, they have no idea that Paul and Silas actually hold Roman citizenship. They view them as outsiders, as Jews, and they're treating them as such. We're told that the slave owners have incited the crowd, and the crowd is now joining with these accusers, calling for punishment for Paul and Silas. Now, Roman punishment often began with public shaming. The standard practice was to strip the accused naked, to flog them severely, and then to throw them into prison. After a period in prison, the accused were often let go unless the crime they committed was punishable by death, and at which case they would be killed. Paul and Silas, were told, were stripped. They were severely flogged, beaten, and thrown into a filthy, dark prison. The jailer was told to watch these two carefully. These were important prisoners and had to be watched carefully. And so because the jailer didn't want to take any risk of their escape, it says he put them into the innermost part of the prison in the inner cell and locked them in stocks. Thirdly, we see the deliverance. Paul and Silas are in the inner part of the prison they're in complete darkness. They're wounded, likely bleeding, locked in stocks and chains. It's likely overcrowded in there because the common practice at night was to herd all of the prisoners into one room in the inner part of the prison to make sure that they were safely secured for the night. So likely they are, they are all pushed in there, extreme heat and smell, 
and just an awful, horrible circumstance. On top of that, prison guards were often selected because they were ruthless and would not resist harming prisoners with any provocation that would come. It's about midnight. And in the midst of all of this disgustingness, Paul and Silas are awake. Perhaps it's their wounds. Perhaps the pain is too intense to sleep. Perhaps the heat and the stench and the crowdedness is making sleep impossible. We don't know why they are still awake. But what we do know is that instead of focusing on their adversity, their pain, their mistreatment, they begin to sing. They begin to sing. Now, when you read the Psalms and when you read various places in the Old Testament, there are references to something called songs in the night. Songs in the night. And this expression signified joy and an expression of joy despite circumstances. A choice to focus on the goodness and faithfulness of God and not one's circumstances. And so Paul and Silas' response to their suffering was worship, was songs in the night. They chose to worship, declaring who God is, declaring uh, who God is in them, what God can and would do, that their circumstances did not define God. And so they're singing. And we're told the other prisoners are awake as well, and they're listening in on this two-person concert that's happening in this in disgusting environment. And as they're singing and as they're encountering this moment of worship, there's an earthquake that shook the prison. And we're told the doors flew open and the chains fell off, but there are no injuries to any of the prisoners and there's no damage to the prison itself because this is a God moment. God is moving here in the midst of this. And so we're told that all of them are free from their chains and that the doors are wide open, yet all of them have stayed where they are, right where they are. Now, it's likely that the jailer's house was either located right next door or even a part of the prison. And so the earthquake woke him up and he went to investigate. We're told seeing that the prison doors were wide open, his assumption was that the prisoners had all escaped and that he would be killed for allowing this to happen. And so we're told that he drew his sword to kill himself rather than face the public humiliation and brutality that would await him if that in case had happened. But Paul immediately intervened. He says, don't harm yourself. We're all here. No one is left. We're all here. And so the jailer called for light, the torches. He's got to see this for himself. And he rushed in and he saw that all of the prisoners were all still there. And it says he fell to the ground trembling. He knew that this was a miracle of God. But he also knew why Paul and Silas were really there. The slave girl announced that they were telling people the way to be saved. And so the jailer in this moment looked at Paul and Silas and said, what must I do to be saved? 
you know, you're making this announcement that people can be saved. How does that affect me? What do I have to do? Now, Paul and Silas are not the way to salvation, but they could point him to the one who was. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And it says, then they explained the word of God to him. And the jailer took them from the prison into his home, into his quarters, cleaned their wounds, set out a meal before them. And we're told that the jailer was filled with joy. That he and his family believed and were baptized. Paul and Silas' choice to worship. Their choice to express joy in their circumstances resulted in this unbeliever finding joy. And Paul and Silas went back to prison and were told in the morning the authorities sent word that Paul and Silas were to be released. There are just three simple things that I want to share with us from the text this morning. I, I, don't, I don't think that these three things are new revelation for us. I don't think we're going to sit there and go, I've never thought of that before. But I think they are simple reminders of some very important truth that I think from time to time we need to be reminded of. The first is this. Bad things happen to good people. I want to remind us this morning that Paul and Silas were godly men. They're godly men who were called by God to advance the mission of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Paul and Silas were obedient to the call of God. Paul and Silas were making whatever sacrifices were necessary to ensure that the mission of Jesus was moving forward. Paul and Silas were spirit-filled. They were spirit-formed. They were spirit-led. They were in Philippi for one reason. They were there because God told them to go there in a vision. And they obeyed God, and they went. They ended up in the predicament they were in because they confronted the powers of darkness, of evil, of the demonic in the authority of Jesus' name. Paul and Silas were good people. They're spiritual people. But that didn't keep them from experiencing painful circumstances. It didn't keep them from being falsely accused. It didn't keep them from being misunderstood. It didn't keep them from being judged unfairly. Now, many of us here in this place today could confidently say that we're doing our best. Yes, sometimes it doesn't go as well as we hope. Sometimes we're not all we should be. But when all is said and done, we're doing the best we know to do, to live as Jesus has called us to live. We really want that. We're spirit-filled people. We're people who are being spirit-formed. We're people who are being spirit-led. We're learning. We're growing. We're obedient to the call of Jesus to carry out his mission in many ways through the week in our lives. 
And like Paul and Silas, we find ourselves in circumstances, we find ourselves facing adversity that we didn't expect and we likely didn't deserve. That's our reality. Sometimes we are falsely accused. Sometimes we are misunderstood. Sometimes we too are judged unfairly. Sometimes we have realities in our lives and in our families that are painful, unbearable, heartbreaking. And we might wonder why. Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my family? When we put our trust in God, we didn't expect that it could ever lead to this reality. It's a difficult thing to get our heads and our hearts around. But I believe that we need to be reminded today that we live in a sinful, broken world where the enemy, Satan, is responsible for sickness and loss and heartache and much of what happens in life is a result of a broken, sinful world. Followers of Jesus experience the effects of living in a broken, sinful world just like everyone else. When we came to Jesus, we didn't get taken to a new world. We're living in this sinful, broken world where bad things happened to everyone, including those who are followers of Jesus. And so the point is, God is not responsible for the pain or the heartache, or the sickness, or the evil in this world. Satan is. And until Jesus returns, and we look in Scripture and see that he returns and ushers the kingdom of God in in its fullness, the Bible tells us that Satan is the God of this world. And bad things will happen to good people, spiritual people. Loving and serving Jesus, being faithful and obedient will not exempt us from the painful realities of life. Secondly, you can experience joy in the night. It is possible to experience the miracle of joy in the night when it's dark, in our painful circumstances in our confusion, in our disappointment, in our losses, because we have Jesus in our lives. That's the difference maker. Paul and Silas demonstrate for us that it is possible to have joy in the midst of adversity. But experiencing joy is dependent on our choices and our focus. When we're facing adversity, we can choose to focus on the negativity. We can choose to focus on the apparent hopelessness of our situation. Or we can choose to focus on God and find hope and joy despite our circumstances. Worship can be our choice as a response to our suffering. We sang about it this morning. While I wait, I will worship. 
as we focus on God's faithfulness, as we focus on God's trustworthiness, as we focus on God's promises and God's presence with us, worship can be the response in the midst of our adversity. We can have joy in the night because we know that God works the night shift. I remember a a Bible college professor sharing the story once of a hardship he was facing in his church. And he said, at one point, God spoke to him and said, listen, just go to bed. I'm going to be up all night anyway. I've never forgotten that. God works the night shift. He's not going to sleep. He's going to stay awake. You don't need to stay up and keep him company. Our choice to worship in our suffering, our choice to trust the faithfulness of God when things are painful will not only impact our lives, but will impact those who are watching our lives and listening to our lives. You see, nothing reveals our relationship with Jesus more than suffering and hardship and disappointment. Who you really are is revealed in times of adversity. And who you are is much more impact, impactful on others. Hear this. Who you are is much more impacting on others than what you say, the information you communicate, your perspective or views on things, and the action you want them to take. Who you are is more important than all of those things. And I want us to be reminded this morning that joy is contagious. Joy is contagious. It impacts others positively. Paul and Silas found joy in the night, and it impacted the other prisoners, and in the end, the jailer found joy. Folks, people need to experience your joy. We think people need to experience our beliefs or they need to experience our point of view or they need to experience what we think they need. People need to experience what it means to meet someone who genuinely has the joy of the Lord. That's what they need. People need more of your joy. They don't need more of your criticism. They don't. People don't. Your family doesn't. Your friends don't. Your kids don't. They don't need more of your criticism. They don't need more of your judgment. They don't need more of your condemnation. They don't need more of your confrontation. They don't need more of your negativity or your expression of hopelessness. They need your joy. They need to see your joy, that Jesus Christ has legitimately impacted you so much that in the fact that you are heartbroken, you still somehow are filled with joy. We can experience the miracle of joy in the night only because of our relationship with Jesus. Folks, I want to tell you this morning, Satan can rob your health, but he can't rob your joy unless you let him. Satan can rob your relationships. He can rob your kids. He can rob your marriage. He can rob your mom, your dad, your friends. He can rob your relationships, but he can't rob your joy unless you let him. 
Satan can rob your, your job, your dreams, your plans, but he can't rob your joy unless you give it to him. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And he doesn't control that. And circumstances don't control that. We do. We do. When we worship him, we find joy in the night. Our choice, our focus, our determination. Because when we seek him, we find him. Thirdly, you can experience freedom within the prison. I want you to think about that for a minute. You can experience freedom within the prison. God's intention for Paul and Silas, hear me, was bigger than simply delivering them from their circumstances in the prison. Because if, if that was God's intention, let me tell you how this story would have read. It would have read the same as the story of Peter read. There was an earthquake and, and a messenger of God showed up and tapped him in the side and woke him up and said, follow me out. If God's desire for Paul and Silas was simply delivery, we would have been reading the same account as Peter. But there's no heavenly messenger to lead them out. You know why? Because leading them out was not in the plan. It wasn't the moment. It wasn't God's first priority. God's first priority was the jailer and his family. God's specialty is bringing good things out of bad things. The enemy desired to hurt and punish Paul and Silas. The enemy desired to shut down their ministry of telling people how to be saved. But God's intention was to use them in the midst of their adversity for his purposes. Now, in contrast... Let's be honest. Often our first priority, and I, maybe I'm only speaking for myself. Maybe you never feel this way. Often our first priority when we face adversity and painful circumstances, our first priority is trying to figure out how to get out. How do we get delivered? How do we make this go away? How do we make it stop? Priority number one. If you're like me, that's what you want. May I suggest this morning that perhaps God's number one priority is not to get you out of your circumstances. Perhaps God's number one priority is to use you to accomplish his purposes while you are in your circumstances. Because this I've noticed too. God can accomplish more through us when we're facing adversity than he usually can by getting us out of our trouble every time. North American Christianity has taught us to expect the quick release, that God doesn't want us to be there 
that the right proportion of faith will get us out. That blessing and deliverance is evidence by a pain-free life. There's a word for that, but I can't say it in the pulpit. Because the story of Joseph teaches us the exact opposite. It teaches us that what the enemy intends for evil, God uses for good. If God had delivered Joseph the minute he hit the bottom of the pit, none of what God did in his life would have been possible. What the enemy intends for evil, God uses for good. It's important that we come to understand that circumstances do not have to change in order to experience freedom from our adversity and our suffering. God's greatest work in and through us happens during the time we are in the great adversity. Paul and Silas were in prison, but I want you to notice when you read this text, they are in prison but they are free. They are free in prison. The chains have fallen off. The stocks have been released. They're still in there. The doors are open, but they're free. God is with them. He's working through them and he's accomplishing his purposes. We may find ourselves embroiled in painful adversity But I want us to know this morning that we can be free in the midst of it because God is with us. God is working through us. God is accomplishing his purposes. I love one part of Brene Brown's book that I don't even remember the title of. I've only read one. She quotes one of my favorite quotes, which I won't recite, but she makes this statement. When we're lying on the ground with our face in the mud. We should lift our heads to see who else is down there with us and use our moment of adversity to identify with and help others who are also struggling as we are. And so my admonition to you this morning is this, don't waste the painful seasons of your life waiting for deliverance. Take your face out of the mud and look around and say, God, while I'm embroiled in this nastiness, who else is here? Who's close by and what impact can you have on their lives if I'm willing to allow you to use me in my circumstance to accomplish your purpose? We can experience freedom in the midst of our adversity because circumstances do not have to change to experience freedom. In a spirit-formed community, people embrace adversity by choosing to focus on God instead of their circumstances. So let's remember this morning that we live in a sinful, broken world where the enemy, Satan, is responsible for sickness and loss and heartache, and we live in that world. Let's remember that we can experience the miracle of joy in the night because of our relationship with Jesus 
And that relationship with Jesus will not only impact us, it will impact those all around us. And let's remember that we can experience freedom in the midst of our adversity because circumstances do not have to change to experience freedom in Christ. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm going to invite our prayer team they would make their way. And we're just going to take the next few moments here this morning. You're here today and you need someone to pray with you, encourage you, strengthen you, walk with you. We invite you to come and allow us that opportunity to pray with you this morning, pray for you this morning. And as Tyler and the team lead us in worship this morning, would you allow the Holy Spirit to touch your heart and your life and remind you of wherever it is you are, whatever it is you're facing, whatever it is you're going through this morning. That if you're willing to focus, there is so much that God can accomplish in you and others in the middle of that this morning.